Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Maritime security is a complex and often overlooked aspect of the African security picture that crosses political, economic, and diplomatic lines. Insecurity at sea is often a manifestation of broader historical governance and security issues taking place on land, shaping African leaders' perceptions of the maritime space and the capacity to fully monitor and understand how their personal and natural interests are impacted in this area. African governments, particularly those with authoritarian leanings, tend to focus narrowly on preventing and managing those issues that mostly threaten the regime in power and their political allies. Concerns that, on the surface, often appear disconnected from the maritime space. Land-based conflict and instability have drawn significant regional and international attention throughout the years prompting corporations on building police and army capacity to counter these threats among host government and the foreign partners. However, this focus on addressing immediate traditional security risks has often excluded a maritime component. Insecurity in Africa's water can often exacerbate the causes of instability on land by disrupting local economies, driving localized unemployment, and increasing competition for diminishing resources. It is also clear that insecurity at sea affects not just the African, but it affects the international community as well. This is the case in the Gulf of Guinea when piracy and illegal fishing has become a great problem. It is also the same as we saw in the Babel Mandab in the Gulf of Aden with piracy. And it's also a challenge because as international actors engage with Africans, it also leads to what we've come to call great power competitions in various forms. Various partners, their own interests, sometimes very well aligned with African countries, sometimes not. But this is the world we live in today. The questions of leadership, the question of equipment, the question of training. It's a complex world. Joining me on Into Africa today to discuss the state of maritime security in Africa, Rear Admiral Chase Patrick, the Director of Maritime Headquarters at U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa and U.S. Sixth Fleet, and Mr. Mark Shapiro, Foreign Policy Advisor to U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa. Gentlemen, welcome. It is a pleasure to host you today. Well, it's uh, great to be with you today, Mavimba. This is uh, really an outstanding podcast series that you have, and I've enjoyed listening to it, particularly in preparation for our call today. Very good. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We appreciate you being here. The maritime security, like I said in my intro, is a complex space. The United States does a lot of work, uh, AFRICOM, land forces, air force, and so on. A number of symposiums, a number of programs, including the National Guard doing state partnership programs. But maritime security remains a little murky, to use a term you may be familiar with, as the waters of the ocean can be. What does the landscape look like to you from where you stand in your engagement with African countries? Well, it could be. I mean, another another word of choice is sea blindness, which is something that that I hear from a lot of the, the countries I visit and in, in our in our maritime partners in those countries. 
As you said earlier, I mean, it, it very clearly, most of the focus tends to be focused landward towards whether it's you know, the conflict, security situations that, that many of our partners are wrestling with. But as we know, most of the global population lives in coastal regions around the globe. 80% or more of global commerce travels the globe by the water commercially. And so we're definitely invested in making sure all, our, all of our partners have the security and stability necessary so they can participate in that global network. And uh, certainly in the case of Africa, where they're forecasting that, that the population of Africa is going to be 25% of the global population and by 2050, and a lot of that population is moving into urban environments, that further underscores the importance of making sure that all of our African partners, particularly ones who, who have coastlines, one, are, are being resourced so they can actually adequately provide security and stability in their blue economy, which will ultimately you know, support the prosperity of their people inland. So, so we're working really hard with our partners to help them develop ways to, to improve their ability to provide that security and stability at sea to improve that prosperity for their people. Mark? Well, I, would, I would add, remember you asked about defining the landscape. It's, it is one that presents a series of law enforcement challenges. And, and therefore, what that becomes for us as U.S. Naval Forces Africa is an exercise in connecting the dots, both on our side and also with our, our African partners. Because you, you're probably aware of this, the United States Navy doesn't have the authorities itself to interdict pirates at sea and take law enforcement action. So it's about getting the right partnerships in place on our ships uh, and with local partners, for example. The, we have a tri-service maritime strategy, which is the premise is a very simple one, closer cooperation and integration between the Navy, the Marines, and the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard is very important there because that's sort of our gateway to the law enforcement domain. And as you know, we have the DEA, the FBI, CBP, other, other law enforcement entities in the U.S. government represented at our embassies around the world. Africa included. So they're doing great work. And oftentimes they can't do it alone. So they need the support uh, that we might be able to provide. With our partners, it's all about African-led and U.S.-enabled solutions. So I think it's safe to say that from all the countries we've, we've traveled to up and down the, the, the coast, the west coast of, of Africa, there's a wide range of capabilities and expertise. Thank you very much, gentlemen. The challenge, of course, is one political. You just talk about the authority, which this really it's about the political leadership. The other challenge is the logistics of it and the expertise. Mr. Shapiro, on the political side, how do you engage with these African countries or how do they engage with you? This is a partnership. It's a tenet of U.S.-Africa strategy, which was launched last year in August in Joburg by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. And partnership and African agency is very centered to that strategy. So from the political standpoint, if we can link a little bit with you, how do they engage the United States? You mentioned one of the key words there, which is partnership. The other word I think I would use is, is multilateral. We also talked before, before we started recording about, you know, you're familiar with our Express series. We have three major multilateral exercises at sea that cover the continent. We have Obangame Express in the west, Phoenix in the north, and Cutlass in the east. And friendship is our greatest strength. That's something that we hold very dear and we recognize the value in that. So the, that's the approach. The approach is within these, these, not just bilateral partnerships, many countries do prefer 
to, to in parallel, reach bilateral security agreements with us in, in some capacity or another. But in, in overall, it is about amplification through the multilateral domain. And that's what you're going to see uh, later this month in Cabo Verde with this first ever African Maritime Forces Summit. We will get to the summit in a minute. Africa has a coastline of about 18,950 miles, which is roughly 30,500 kilometers. That's a long coastline. We know that while African countries have invested a lot in the land forces, I think that's nature. That was part of the colonial security architecture. Africans adopted that. They've not gone far beyond that. We, the United States, that is, has central point of entries, countries that are kind of anchor countries, places like Egypt, places like Djibouti, maybe South Africa, where we conduct a lot of maneuvers, also in the Gulf of Guinea. How do you cover such a big space, even in the terms of partnership? The United States is the United States. It has might, it has power, it has means. The United States also has a history of engaging sometime. This is from the African perspectives. Sometimes it's not always looked upon positively. Sometimes they're skeptical about it, which are all reasonable perspectives. In our United States perspective of the world, how do we ensure those interests engaging with such a plethora of actors, meaning the African themselves, we're not even talking about the bad guys, and then in such a wide space? I think the first point is we do a lot of listening. When we, when we travel and we meet with heads of Navy and heads of defense and political leaders and, and, and so forth all around the continent. So a lot of listening. Then I think it's also important to note that, yes, the, the challenge is vast. And I, I think one of the things that this administration identified some time ago was that there's a little bit of a, an alliance gap in the South Atlantic. The North Atlantic has NATO and in the South in Asia, there's ASEAN and, and so forth. So there was a desire to strengthen multilateral cooperation there and with some sort of architecture. But it's important to realize that, yes, the challenge is big, but it, we're not coming at this alone. There's a lot of history here. The Brazilians have had Zopacas, you know, the, the South Atlantic Peace and Cooperation Zone since the mid-80s. Um, there's a tremendous network of Lusophone, Portuguese-speaking countries that, that already exists. There are varying levels of expertise on the ground, at sea, all around the continent that that we learn from. So it's a question of putting the pieces together and connecting the dots. And when you listen, we hear what the main challenges are. Of course, you have piracy, you have narcotics and smuggling, but the illegal, unregulated and IUU fishing is, I think, the biggest challenge that we hear about. And so that's a little bit more complicated because it involves law enforcement authorities and dealing with local navies and coast guards of, of varying capacities. When African nations are able to, to align themselves to regional or perhaps continental bodies like the African Union or ECOWAS or other similar bodies, I think that, that helps to distill out you know, what are some of those core issues that maybe they find that they're not able to deal with themselves. And then, and then that helps a partner like the U.S. come in and perhaps bring solutions. Otherwise, a country-by-country -country approach presents an, inf an infinite number of challenges uh, across a very complex space. And so I think you know, those, those interactions at those levels uh, do a lot to, to help us meet those political or logistical concerns that, that Africa brings up. Uh, certainly NATO has engagements with Africa Union as well, which is another means for us to, to make, or you, and that goes to the European Union as well. 
these are other bodies that 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 allow us one to present and participate in multilateral solutions. And within that solution set, there may be some things that that the U.S. does have have the means and the capability and expertise to support. This is a very important year, 2023, because it's the 10-year anniversary of the founding of the Yaoundé Code of Conduct. And that's huge, particularly when it comes to more difficult challenges like the illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing. The architecture is in place. Some of the countries that we have visited have very, very professional, well-staffed maritime operation centers, MOCs, and others need a little bit more work. So it's about seeing where can we add value to sort of tighten the screws and help strengthen the connective tissue that already exists. Yaoundé is a, is a fantastic construct, and we want to do everything we can to, to help our, our African partners have it live up to its, its full promise. So the Yaoundé Code of Conduct, which was signed in 2017, was designed to help manage the nature of transnational threats, but also how various countries will engage in that space. We also have the Djibouti Code of Conduct, which was even earlier than the Yaoundé. How are the two different or how are they the two complementary to each other? And how do they make your life easier, I suppose, or even challenging? I think there are similarities. To be sure, the challenges are not carbon copies of each other in the Horn of Africa and East Africa in general and, and in the Gulf of Guinea. When we travel to the continent and we have ships pull in and we have our engagements and so forth, one of the questions that we hear a lot is there's a lot of architecture that exists. There's also Friends of Gulf of Guinea. There's also shade, the deconfliction mechanism in, in the Gulf of Guinea and so forth. And so we hear this question, where should we focus our energies? Because some of our smaller partners up and down the, the, the coast of Africa don't necessarily have the capability to do everything. And so it's about trying to focus their niche capabilities and their resources on what would be most useful. And to the extent we can provide advice and guidance on that, we, we will try to do so. But I think there are definitely similarities between the two codes of conduct. I flag Yaoundé just because this year is an, is an important year and hopefully we can take advantage of this year, galvanize the whole YAMS architecture to the next level. What are the highest demands? So if you were to categorize on a list the highest demand you get from your partners in Africa, what is most asked for? Training, for sure. And that, that's, that's probably the easiest thing that we can deliver to our partners will be a training and expertise. And that, that goes hand in hand with what, what any, any well-organized military or defense force attempts to do which is to, to improve the professionalization of its, of its human capital. And, and I think that's something that works very effectively. The IMET program or the International Military Education and Training Program is one that I do hear about a lot, either in country visits or in bilateral engagements. It seems that a lot of our partners value that program, not least because it helps to strengthen the understanding of the role of the civilian military le- leadership structure and again, promotes professionalization of their forces, which ensures that any country, Ghana, for example, is one that makes high use of IMET in training with the U.S. and the West, consequently has a very high public opinion and is highly respected I mean, by the population. So that probably is, is the area that they ask for the most help on is training. So training and training comes with equipment. Naval equipment are not cheap. I suppose these are big challenges for these countries. I I was looking at a country like Mozambique with all the challenges that they face. They still have very limited number of patrol boats. 
Mr. Shapiro is talking about law enforcement. With everything that is happening in Mozambique, it's, they're definitely under-equipped. The other issue that is obviously important is, I think we call it great power competition. I'm still, I'm still hesitant to use that term because I'm not always sure what it means. Just because people are here, they're necessarily competing. And it, it always means, it brings more tension when you use that term. At least for me, when I hear that term, it's like, what does this mean? So Djibouti is, is one such place where we have at least eight different foreign bases there in different shapes, right? Different form with the Americans, the French, the Chinese, Chinese, South Koreans are there, the Japanese are there, and so on. And we have Africans who rotate through American bases there as well. And we've heard recently that China had design of building a base in Equatorial Guinea, at least in that. We wrote a piece on that early on when they, last year when they studied us. How does that play out within this space? I mean, the United States has partners. China is having its own partners. Last month, one of the big news was the joint maneuvers between South Africans and the Chinese and the Russians. South Africa, of course, being also a partner of the United States. Early on, I used the, I used the term murky waters you know, of, of, uh, of the world out there. This is, can be quite murky quite quickly. How do we navigate that space? By meaning the world. By that I mean the world. How does the world navigate this convergence of interests or sometimes divergence of interest? Right. Well, General Langley at the African Chads Conference, and General Langley is the AFRICOM commander. I mean, as he put it on that first day, He's not interested in, in zero-sum competition for the hearts and minds of, of our African partners. What he really cares about is their security, their stability, eventually enabling prosperity. And as he put it, you know, your success is my success. I believe he takes the view that our partners, they have a range of challenges. They will seek assistance where they can get it, and we will do our part to help them in that. I think we try to make clear that as a partner, the U.S. doesn't look at Africa as a source for extractable resources. We're, we're there to help them improve their governance, improve their management of fisheries, improve their security systems so they can improve the prosperity of their people and enable them to participate in the global marketplace. And, and that's, that means that all boats rise on the tide, and, and that's good for the U.S., and that's really, very good for our American partners and I'm not quite sure some of our, as you say, questionable great power competitors, I'm not quite sure that, that they're fully in it for the prosperity of our African partners. But, but they'll have to judge that for themselves. I agree with you completely that the term great power competition it makes me a little nervous too. And I've found in my career in the State Department that it's, it's not necessarily the best way to express what's going on. When you use a term like great power competition across the African continent, it brings back memories or flashbacks to other times in history where great powers were playing their own game across the continent. And that's not what this is about. Every country has its interests. No country should be pushed to make a binary choice between having a relationship with one versus having a relationship with another. They will do whatever is best in their interest to do. Djibouti is a great example of that, right? To the extent that all these paces are able to coexist together, it makes for interesting, uh, interesting politics on the ground. But that goes to show you that it is about putting our best foot forward, representing who we are, and having the kind of relationship on an equal footing that we desire with our, with our African partners. And that's about an open society. And that's, that's the type of society that, that we want to promote. That's the type of society we are. It's a noisy, 
messy society, but we wouldn't want it any other way. Some of our adversaries are promoting other models and, and countries around the world can make their own choices. But ultimately, when you look at partnership and friendship, so far for the, for the summit that we have later this month, there's 38 countries attending, 38. That says a lot about how we see the world and how the type of relationships that we want to have and where we believe the power comes from. It's in shared values and, and cooperation to get after these, these transnational challenges. Djibouti is certainly a place that is vivid in imagery when, when one visits there, because not only you see all this presence, these spaces, but then when you go to town, you just look at sea, you can see the various ships that are in, in harbor. And then even when you go to a place like the Kapinski Hotel, it's full of uniforms. Sometimes I wonder, it's like, is this another military base or is it just a hotel? So it's, it's very interesting. And we wonder if that's going to be something we'll see more in certain countries or will uh, it too much more a lower profile? Because Djibouti is definitely too much of a high profile. And sometimes you wonder what is, this actually means. Yes, I don't know. Right. I mean, but, you know, Djibouti, what makes Djibouti very special is it's like they say in real estate, you know, location, location, location. I guess they say the same thing in baseball when it comes to pitching as well. But but at the end of the day, I mean, Djibouti has an enormously important location in the, in the global commons there right next to the Bab el-Mandeb choke point or entry into the Red Sea. So it probably shouldn't come as a surprise that Djibouti sort of feels like another Navy town, like in San Diego, California. You see a lot of you know, Navy ships and personnel and, and, frankly, other services or forces there. They occupy a remarkably strategic location. And, and I think everybody in some of the countries that you cited who have posture there are all very keen to make sure that the ability for commercial shippers to, to navigate the Red Sea and into the Gulf of Aden and out are able to do so unmolested. And hopefully, I mean, this kind of presence in Djibouti helps to eventually establish uh, a greater industrial base and, and, and improve uh, Djibouti's ability to provide for good jobs and, and upward mobility for their own citizens, which would be one of the goals that we would have for that country. Absolutely. And that's the prayer and the hope we have for Djibouti, I think, because there's still some of us go there and we wonder where does the rent money go? But the Djiboutian will figure that out in due time, <laughs> I suppose. So you are hosting the first symposium on maritime security later this month. Uh, in March, in Cabo Verde, quite a destination. But even more importantly, this is a critical event, I suppose. Mr. Shapiro just referred to it, 38 countries, I think, that are showing up. What is the symposium about? Why now? So we are very excited about the African Maritime Forces Summit. We are holding it in Cabo Verde because they are close partners. We've got a, a long, close relationship. We have a bilateral law enforcement agreement with them. We just signed in December on the sidelines of the Africa Leaders Summit a memorandum of understanding for defense. So strong relationship. It's a great location to have the conference. I mean, you can certainly have the conference in Europe, but but we think the best thing we could do is hold it down in one of our African partner countries and, and Cabo Verde seem to have the facilities and the ability to host a, an, an event of this size. And so we're very excited about that. Why host this conference? Well, fundamentally, it's, as you noted earlier, it's the first of its kind. The most important thing that we can do with this conference is create another venue for all of our 
partner maritime leaders to come together and, and build relationships and talk constructively about the problems that they're dealing with. What I have seen in my travels is that they, they all are very clear-eyed about their security challenges. But as, as they conceded recently at the African Chief of Defense Conference and in our one-on-one or, or multilateral settings, they understand that, that most of their security challenges they're not able to address on their own. And most will require a collective solution of some kind. And by bringing, bringing these leaders together, we hope to foster those relationships, which in the long run is what engenders trust. And if we build trust, then we'll be able to build the cooperations that are necessary for them to, to actually work together to address those security challenges. Mr. Shapiro? I would say, to put it quite simply, the most, the most valuable thing we can do is make sure everybody's talking to each other. And very often, we used to have, in previous years, senior leadership symposium at, at each of the three express series exercises. And so now, putting this all together and having one that's continent-wide, where we found that a lot of the heads of Navy and the heads of Coast Guard that we know and work with across the continent don't necessarily have very many opportunities to meet in person. And so that is tremendous value. And we see the, the conversations that happen, of course, during the sessions, but more important than that, it's what happens in the corridors and people going off and having coffee and working out mutual approaches to shared challenges and, and so forth. Because as I said before, the capabilities are, are vastly different up and down the coast. And so that this helps harmonize it a little bit. And sharing information, I think, again, getting people to talk to each other, that's half the battle right there. Fostering relationship, building trust, laying the foundation or building on the foundation for cooperation seem all like very laudable goals and allowing a platform for the Africans to talk to each other is also very important. These type of venues, these type of events are often initiated by partners of the African countries, so the United States, France, and others, the Brazilians, as Mr. Shapiro mentioned earlier. How do the Africans themselves organize to engage you? Does the African Union, for instance, I know there is an African security architecture. I'm not very clear about how the maritime security piece of it plays into this. But do they initiate engagement at the continental level? I'm sure individual countries do this. But at the African level, the AU level, how does that work? We tend not to work through the, the regional parties, organizations, or even at the AU level, our engagements with the countries are more on a bilateral approach, and then we'll bring them together in multilateral settings. But that's sort of been the design has been that approach. So less so with the AU. Mark, you may have more on this than me. Or even like the ECOWASs of the world, those wrecks, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, we do have we do have relationships with them both directly and through our embassies in the region, of course. But one thing that's interesting to note is that we have an interesting advantage here, I think, in, in Naples is that our, our commander, Admiral Munch, is not only the commander for U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa, he's also the commander for NATO's Joint Force Command in Naples. And that's that's very important because that's the location of NATO's hub for the South, which is a very think tank-like in many ways. It's about horizon scanning, challenges, reach back, partnerships, universities, the types of things that we do routinely in, in the State Department. And so that's a recognition by, by the NATO alliance that 
particularly the southern tier of NATO countries, has, a, has an interest and a priority in assisting more with the challenges that come out of the Sahel and, and Sub-Saharan Africa in, in particular. But one thing that has just come up recently is the African Union is trying to get more involved in the maritime domain. And there's, there's an effort to create some sort of AU-led maritime exercise in the Gulf of Guinea, which we fully support. And if there's a way that, that, that we will be asked to add value and contribute, we will certainly do everything we can to do that because um, that's exactly the kind of multilateral architecture that, that I referred to earlier that we want to empower and, uh, and strengthen even further. In that context, then, you talked about some of your goals. At the end of the summit, what do you hope to achieve? 38 countries, a lot. No, it's a lot of countries. And as you've already described earlier, it is a tremendously large continent. Every sector of that continent has a different set of security challenges. Even during the course of the summit, we'll have a, a period of time where we're going to break the audience down into, into the different regions so they can sort of focus on talking about the, the security concerns resident within those regions. But, but fundamentally, I would say our hope is to continue the momentum of one, the apparent shift in the U.S. government approach to Africa, which started with the uh, Sub-Saharan strategy, the African Leaders Summit. General Langley at AFRICOM has been very active in terms of his engagements with chiefs of defense, with the country to teams. We are hoping to similarly continue that momentum with the AMFS. And then again, this is all long-term type work that's underway to to get our partners to a higher level to where they're more effectively able to have maritime domain awareness and, and, and better secure their waters and manage their fisheries. What I hope to see is what I think we're seeing through the Obangami Express exercise series. What started 10 years ago or so was a fairly simple design and, and, and exercise, which today is enormously complex, upward of 20, 20 plus countries participating complex scenarios. We've even integrated women, peace, and security with our exercise series. But what's emerging from that, from that enhanced relationship building and cooperation and, and development of trust, is we're now seeing our partners start to work together in the water space. Joint patrols between Cabo Verde and Senegal. Nigeria is uh, participating in local patrols. They're they're getting better at passing information concerning violent extremist organizations across Ghana, Benin, Togo, and Nigeria. So we're, we're seeing enhanced cooperation, en enhanced information sharing, which hopefully will lead to enhanced command and control of operations, where they actually have this information, they're sharing that information with each other, and, and now they're acting on it. And, and in the long run, that's, that's where we're trying to continue to put energy into is that momentum, that progress, which I believe, just as uh, uh, Dr. Usman at the African Chats Conference said last week, I think the long-term prospects are very good. There's a lot of opportunity there. They certainly have some security challenges in the way, but if they keep doing what they're doing, then I think they'll overcome that and accomplish a lot of good. There's always a gap between how people perceive engagement or situation, the reality. What do you think is the greatest misperception of U.S. naval engagement in, in this space? That's a tough question. I don't know if I have a single answer for you, but I can tell you that we are intensely focused 
on the perceptions challenge. I think on a continent like Africa, you have to be. We are students of history altogether, and we are not looking to repeat any of that. It's about sovereignty, and it's about equal partnerships and forging a new path towards the future together. And I think there's still a lot of baggage when it comes to the perceptions question that we're very sensitive to. And so we will always try to present it in, a, in the most transparent and open way possible. Thank you very much for that. On this note, I'd like to thank you two gentlemen, Admiral Chase Patrick, Director of the Maritime Headquarters of U.S. Navy Europe, Africa Forces and the Sixth Fleet, and Mr. Mark Shapiro, Foreign Political Advisor to the Commander of the uh, U.S. Naval Forces Europe, Africa. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Really appreciate you today. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. So long.